Hey, Venture, it's good to see you today. You in the room, those of you online, it's great to see you. I've got a ton of content I can't wait to dive into. But before we do that, if you uh, do not have one of these vision guides yet, would you just stick your hand up in the air? We've got some ushers. We would love to bring you one right now. Don't be shy. Put your hand up in the air. Just wave it around. They'll come to you with one of these. You're going to find some vision pages in the front of it. You're going to find spaces to take notes. Even for this sermon right here, I'd invite you, go ahead, all of us, go to page 34. That's where you're going to take your sermon notes today. You're going to find small group content in there to interact with. You're also going to find one of these commitment cards. You just heard Kyle mentioned we are in a five-week generosity initiative. Unashamedly, we're talking about well, we're trying to raise the temperature of generosity in our church. There's a lot of reasons to do that. And, um, well, God talks about this an awful lot. Last week I said we talk about money in every sphere of life. We talk about it at business. We talk about it at home with our family. We ought to be talking more about this uh, at church as a church family. So we're doing that. Could I invite you? I hope you've had this someplace Maybe your Bible tucked in your Bible or your nightstand or next to your toothbrush. And when you see this, you're reminded to pray over this commitment card. Pray um, a plan for what new life generosity looks like during this season. Pray bold prayers. Pray courageous prayers. Actually, next Sunday, we're going to celebrate an all-church commitment and uh, we're going to lay these down as an act, an offering before God. And I would encourage you to gear up for that. Before I get started in the bulk of my message, we had an incredible night this past Thursday night. Thursday night, we had what we call Advanced Commitment Night, and it was a sweet time of connection. We actually met at the original Woodland Springs Christian Church, which is where our spiritual forefathers, where they worshiped. And it was such a cool space to be in. And just a sweet night of faithfulness, being reminded of God's faithfulness and surrender, surrendering to his faithfulness. I heard a lot of cool stories that night. And I have received a lot of cool stories even since Thursday night. People responding, God's doing this thing in my heart, and I want you to know. I want to share with you just a couple of the emails that I've gotten here recently. This one is from Shaley. I want you to know this series has been the right next step in discipleship. Remember, we keep talking about money is discipleship. It's a component of discipleship. They are linked. We ought to be talking about this. This has been the next right step in discipleship for Spencer and I. Last night was emotional for both of us as we deeply felt the Holy Spirit loosen chains that we've been really weighed down by. We've been unwilling to let go out of fear. But something clicked last night, and the fear didn't matter anymore. Today, we both woke up feeling lighter. It's a good feeling. Thanks for leading our family to this new growth and new life. We're ready for the next two years, I love this, of letting go. Listen to this email message from Doug. Yesterday was an emotional roller coaster for the Zabonic family. As we experienced the lows of dealing with my future with cancer. 
and the highs of the Advance Commitment Service Night. I was, quite frankly, a bit of an emotional train wreck. Your prayers and support mean more than words can ever capture, and I truly feel God's presence in all of my relationships with your staff and the rest of my church family. I love this line. I'm truly blessed. And then he tells his story. When my wife Kathy and I were first introduced to this New Life initiative, we were excited about the opportunity to embark on a new journey adventure. And as I began considering what our role would be in this adventure, I considered it a God thing. That same as you, you met some of them last Sunday. A ministry that my company has supported was identified as an organization that we would be supporting. That's one of the New Life Through Us strategies that we have leaned into. We were absolutely certain that he wanted, that we wanted to be a part of new life and the anticipated eternal impacts on our lives, our church, and our community. On July 13, new life took a whole new meaning with the diagnosis of my cancer. Virtually overnight, almost everything in my life that I had considered absolutely certain was turned upside down. Since the diagnosis, our lives have been spent dealing with surgery, recovery, and numerous medical procedures that have confirmed that the cancer has spread to my lungs. The new reality is that I will be living with and managing the cancer for the remainder of my physical life. Management will include two years of immunotherapy and medications having an average monthly cost in excess of 50 grand. What has remained constant is my faith, my family. And my friends. It would have been easy to step back and say that my new life doesn't align with the new life journey. To allow fear and uncertainty to overcome our faith in God and His provision, the reality is that we serve an awesome and all powerful God. I feel like I should read that again. The reality is that we serve an awesome and all-powerful God, amen, who has always been and always will be faithful. We have chosen to continue on this journey with courage and no doubt that God has blessed us and will continue to bless us during our brief time here on this earth and throughout eternity. New life is a reminder of the new life that we were given when we accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior and the new life that we will be moving forward. The new life that we will have moving forward. Counting our blessings every day and praying that new life will have impacts that ripple through eternity. I love that. Listen, God truly is in the business of bringing about new life in us, and as we've been saying all along, through us as well. This makes me look so forward to next Sunday, our all-church commitment Sunday. I pray that you're praying bold prayers. I pray that you're praying courageous prayers. I can't wait to see what he does in us and through us. Before I dive into the text by the way, we're still in 2 Corinthians. Today we're turning the corner from chapter 8 to chapter 9. Before we do that, though, would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Father God, we pray against cancer. Jesus, we pray for eyes to see beyond the temporal 
to the eternal. We pray for new life in us. We pray for new life through us. Lord, as we open up your words, as we open up scripture, would you reveal truth to us today? We invite your presence to speak to us right now. And it's in your name, in Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. We've been journeying through 8. Here we turn the corner to 9. If you have not yet gone there with me, do that right now. The title of today's message is The New Life is the Cheerful Life. See if you can find words of cheer here in the text, beginning with verse 1. Here we go. There is no need for me. This is the Apostle Paul writing a letter. There's no need for me to write to you about this service to the saints. Let's catch up, shall we? Chapter 8, we learned some things. I got out my hand map last week. We talked about how Paul is writing a letter to the region of Achaia down here. But he's writing from the northern part of the province of Greece. This is the Roman Empire now. But he's writing from up here, and he's writing a letter down here to Corinth. And he's been using the example of the Macedonian churches, how they've given even out of their poverty. It's meant to be inspiring, an inspiring message to the church down here in Corinth. For I know your eagerness to help. And I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, to this group of churches up here. It would be like writing from Michigan down to Indiana to say, be inspired by what God is doing up here. And he's saying, don't make a liar out of me. I've been boasting about what you guys are up to, telling them that since last year, you in Achaia, you down here in the area around Corinth, were ready to give. And your enthusiasm, we're talking about cheerfulness today, you see some clues here in the text, has stirred most of them to action. So in other words, he's been saying, listen, they are meant to inspire you, but you should know that you have been inspiring them. There's a reciprocal nature here to this giving. But I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow. Don't make a liar out of me, he's saying. But that you may be ready. Pay attention to that word. We're coming back to it. As I said, you would be. If any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, remember that, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. There's so much richness to the text here that we can tease out. What I want to do is spend the time I have with you unpacking, we're going to call them three truths about cheerfulness. Being a cheerful giver. Three truths. If you're a more a better word picture type of a person, picture it this way. The first truth is a foundational truth. It's like when you build a house. You need a foundation to build everything on top of. That's where we're going to start. Then we're going to spend the bulk of the time in that second truth. It's kind of like building the house out, fleshing that house out. The third truth then, well, we're going to live into it. It's like when you plug in the electricity and you turn on the utilities and you live into that home foundation, building the house, 
then living into it. Those are the three truths. Here's the first one. If you're taking notes, by the way, you might want to write this down. You can talk about this later with your small group. True, cheerful giving means that I, we make this personal. This isn't a corporate. This is a me. Let me lean into this. I give at the ready. Huh. What's that mean? Well, we see some hints there in the verses we just read. If you would skip verse 6, we're going to come back to verse 6. Look down at verse 7. Look at this, what it says here. Each man, each woman, each person should give what they have decided in their heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Why? Well, because God loves a cheerful giver. Aha, the title of the message Cheerful giving. There we go. It's right there in, not black and white, green and gray or whatever that is. We're looking at there. I rarely do this, but could I show you the Greek word? It's all Greek to me. Yeah, I get it. There is a word that's used here in the New Testament, Koine Greek. It's pretty important that we lean into it. It's the word that gets translated cheerful. Can I show it to you? Here's what it looks like. The H is not just, well, it's not silent. It's invisible. Hilaron. Hilaron is the actual, it's the tense and the form structure of the word that's used right there in the verse we just read. It's from the root word. I'm going to trans- transliterate this so you can see it in English letters. It looks like this. Hilaros. Hilaros. Does that remind you of anything? Hilarious. And there is some connection. It's in the same word family. We get that word from the Greek word hilaros. But a lot of pastors, and I've done this myself, erroneously say that this passage is about giving hilariously. And I can get there. Have you ever been to a live comedy event where there's multiple acts? I love those. I love going to a live comedy event. By the time the main act stands up, you're primed, you're ready, you'd laugh at anything. You ever wonder why those late night, they, they're laughing at jokes that aren't funny? It's be, I've been to those. I've been to the taping of Johnny Carson, uh, um, not Johnny Carson, but uh, David Letterman, and I went to the Tonight Show after Carson, whoever that was, Jay Leno, years ago. And by the time the show starts, you are primed, you are ready to laugh. So there's something about this, this hilarious idea, that giddy laughter. Well, you're primed, you're ready, you're ready for the moment. Here's a good translation, translation of hilaros. It literally means cheerful, joyful, ah, and ready to do anything. And as you read the rest of this passage, the foundation we want to build this on, you're going to see that this is all about readiness. The whole passage is about readiness. We don't give out a compulsion. We give at the ready. Have you noticed that there's been an uptick in um, tipping or expected tipping recently? Am I the only one that has noticed this? I go to pay for something, it's like, well, do you want a tip? And Listen, your pastor seeks to be generous for several reasons, but when we go to a restaurant, for me, it's just like an automatic 20% tip. Well, not only do I want to live generously, but honestly, I learned this a long time ago, 
I've served some large churches in my day and age, and people recognize me sometime even when I don't recognize them. And I'm connected, whether I want to be or not, with Jesus in that moment. And so I just kind of, I, I tip. I don't tip for service. I tip just because I'm supposed to tip, and I want to live and model generosity. I'll tip my barber, but there are times when I show up and I'm at that, like, you know, I'm putting the card in, and it's like, well, wait, there's an expect. When did we start tipping the mechanic or whatever? When did this start happening? I feel like maybe a few years ago during COVID, there was an uptick of that. And, you know, you pay at the front versus pay at the table. Some of those rules, it's like, wait, wait, where are we right now as a culture? What is expected? Can anybody relate to me in this? By the way, that whole roundup thing, roundup for the charity, one of the litmus tests that I've been using recently is I ask the person who is serving me in that moment, if they can tell me about the charity, you want me to round up for this cause, Tell me about that organization. What do they do? Listen, there's a lot of 501c3 organizations that I don't necessarily agree with their charter statements. Philosophically, we are not aligned. And if they don't know what this is about, well, you know, I, I don't always do that. Sometimes I do. I don't always do that. But that moment where you're being asked to be generous, you're being asked to give a tip, and you just simply weren't ready. Oh, it causes a sinking feeling in my heart. It makes me feel uncomfortable. <gasps> I wasn't ready for this question. My goal, we've done a five-week series on generosity. The Bible talks a lot about generosity. I don't know the last time Venture did a five-week series on money and generosity. It's important we do this Part of the reason for that is to simply be ready. I want to prepare us to be ready to give so that we can be cheerful. Why? Cheerfulness here in the text is not about a feeling. It's about readiness. Let's gear up. Let's get ready. That's why I'm challenging you to pray with your spouse. If you haven't done that yet, do it. But to put this somewhere in your home, to see it and be reminded, to gear up, be praying, because readiness. We often like to use passages like the one we just read as an excuse not to give. I don't feel cheerful. I don't have joy today, so I don't need to give today. That's not actually what this passage means at all. You know, people in your life, I've got a kid like this who's always up for anything. You want to get in the car today and drive to Michigan? Heck yeah, put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. I love people like that. I'm up for anything. I also like the people that when we say, hey, let's go grab dinner together, they'll say, I'll eat anywhere. Awesome. Indian food. Here we go. I love it. I love folks like that. They're not giving a hilarious giver, a joyful giver. A cheerful giver, this hilaros giver, is up for anything. They are at the ready. There's a readiness that means that they're not giving out of compulsion because somebody is making them do it, but rather they have this readiness in their heart and there's joy there. There's a desire to do it. I've been saying through this whole series that I've lived my whole life farm adjacent. This has kept me busy this season, we're in this new life season right now, so I'm not doing this this year, but many years. I love to trek over this time of year to Missouri. The family farm is over there, and I gather with uncles and cousins, and we go deer hunting. I escape to the woods to find my soul, to loosely quote the botanist, naturalist, John Muir. 
that's healing time for me to be out there. I had this moment a few years ago. I was sitting in the woods, and I snapped a picture. This is a picture of my cousin's son. He's in a combine. You can barely see it back there. And uh, the reason I'm sitting there is because sometimes when they're combining a field like that, deer just tend to squirt out of the field, and I'm there just kind of waiting for him, ready for him. Well, after about 30 laps running around me, I just went out and I climbed into the combine with him. And oh my goodness, the look on his face, the smile on his face was a joy to behold. Why? Because the whole year has geared up to this point. Listen, he loves to deer hunt. But he wasn't missing being in the deer stand because he wanted to be in the combine. Why? Because they'd been planting, they'd been cultivating, they'd been preparing, they'd been gearing the whole year for this moment. This is the Super Bowl event for a farmer. Here we go. That's the foundational truth. Hilaros. Cheerful. Giving at the ready. Here's the second Truth, if you're taking notes, write this down. True, cheerful giving means that I not just give it the ready, but I embrace the risk of sowing and reaping. That's the old-timey, even Bible-sounding language. Sowing and reaping. And oh, there is risk. There's a reason why there's such a thing as crop insurance for modern-day farmers. There is risk in sowing and reaping. In the text we're studying, you see this right here. Remember we skipped verse 6? Let's go back to it real quick. Chapter 9, verse 6, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. We could preach a whole series from that verse. There's a lot there. Actually, you can take that verse, you can bounce this chunk of chapter 9, 2 Corinthians, off of Galatians chapter 6. See if this doesn't sound familiar. Another letter Paul's writing to the church in Galatia, verse 7. He highlights what I've heard described as the absolute principle. We're going to grab this and talk about absolute principles. But he says this, For whoever, or whatever rather, a person sows, he will also reap. Does that sound familiar? If you read the whole chapter, chapter 6 of Galatians, there's an awful lot here. Based on that teaching there, and in 2 Corinthians, where we're studying today, let me share with you there are at least, that I can find, five rules. Remember, it's an absolute principle. Five rules of the harvest. You could even call them laws. Today, we're going to call them farm rules. Straight out of this verse. Five of them. If you're taking notes, write these down. Here's the first one. The harvest, that moment with the combine, the harvest is limited to the planting. Duh. That seems so basic. It is. These are simple principles, but don't call them simplistic. They are simple, but I would contend we don't always live according to these rules. We tend to break them. We tend to bend them, nudge them. The harvest is limited to the planting. With each one of these, I want to give you kind of a, uh, not just the rule, the farm rule, but is there kind of a, just a plain truth, a way we can re-speak that. I've said I'm farm adjacent. I've been that way most of my life. You know what this is? Can you recognize this? You've seen them if you've driven around Hamilton County the last couple of weeks. They're everywhere right now on a country road especially. 
It's a combine. I made the mistake the first hour. I glanced at it, and I, as, it was, as I was saying something about corn, I realized I'm saying that wrong. This is for grain. Maybe this is hay. I don't think they're soybeans, but this rake right here pulls the crop, a bumper crop, up in here, and then it collects up in here, and it's a whole complicated machinery. They're very expensive, but that is a combine. Anybody recognize what this one is? It's a, I counted it. I think it's a 12-row planter. By the way, when I was a kid, one of my uncles was an executive, or what he was before he retired, at John Deere. And there was a debate in my family between red tractors and green tractors. Well, my uncle Harold would give me a green tractor for Christmas every year. He bought my loyalty. That became the, the tractor that I would root for, the green ones, the John Deere tractors. This is a planter. A combine comes after a planter. You could restate this rule this way. The success of the combine is dictated by the success of the planter. The success of the combine is dictated by the success of the planter. In other words, you can only harvest what you plant. In other words, if you haven't sown it, God can't multiply it. One of the clearest pictures of multiplications, uh, multiplication in our Bibles happens in John chapter 6 where Jesus is standing in front of 5,000 men. If you multiply it out, you think about math, there's probably 15,000 if you include the women and the children. He takes a little boy's lunch, five loaves, two fish, a Hebrew happy meal. You know the story. He takes those and he blesses the food. He distributes it to his disciples until everybody is fed, and there are 12 basketfuls left over. This miracle demonstrates the pattern of multiplication. It's only as you put what you have in the hands of Jesus, well, then, then it gets multiplied. We tend to reverse that. That's God's economy. When we think through our own limited perspective, we tend to think of it like this. Well, if God multiplies what I have, then, then I'll give it away. Oh, we could preach a whole series there. There's a faith issue at play here. Because in God's economy, God says, give it away. Give it away, and it will multiply. Give it away, and it will multiply. Farm rules. We looked at the first one. Let's look at the second one. Not only is the harvest limited to the planting, but the harvest comes later than the planting. Duh, but we need to remind ourselves of this. Here's the plain truth way you could restate that rule. The combine, we just looked at one, comes after the planter. The hard part about harvesting is that it takes time to see your efforts pay off. A lot of people never see the harvest. They start well, but they give up too soon. We live in a generation of instant gratification. I'm guilty. When I diet, I want to see the results right away. I want to eat a salad and then see the difference the next morning. But life doesn't work like that. Real change takes time to grow. This is true in agriculture. I've got a pastor friend that tells a story. When he was a kid, he's older than me, but he, he grew up near a farm. He was also farm adjacent. He had access to a bunch of seeds. After his neighbors would aerate their lawns, he and his buddies would sneak out at night and throw random seeds into their yards. <laughs> I love that. He said the hard part about the joke was that it took so long to see the results. After six months or so, 
there were watermelons and sunflowers growing in their yards. I kind of love that. Pastors can be honorary. Friends, these are the kind of people you've entrusted your souls to. Here's the point. Results take time. What you sow today, you don't see the return of until the next season of life. Sowing is all about the future. And while it's worth the wait, we don't always act like it is. Farm rules. Here's the third one. The harvest is greater than the planting. We sure hope so. That's the whole point of investing that seed in the ground, right? Let me restate it this way. The pile of the combined seeds is bigger than the sacks of planted seeds. I have a picture to illustrate. This is designed to become this. A bag of corn, an elevator. By the way, that seed corn company in DeKalb, Illinois, I happen to know that that's the hometown of Cindy Crawford. I'm not sure why that stuck into my teenage brain, but the supermodel Cindy Crawford, that is where she grew up, DeKalb seed corn. And I did a little bit of research and discovered that this bag of seed corn contains on average 80,000 kernels and can plant, get this, 2.5 acres. Then I did some research and some simple math. The state of Indiana, as I understand it, we are ranked number eight on the fertility scale. Our soil, number eight of the 50 states, in producing what you put in the ground, soil conditions, weather conditions, there's all kinds of things that play into that. The average Indiana yield for seed corn is 187 bushels per acre. I did the math. That means one bag, this bag right here, will yield 468 bushels of corn. You talk about multiplication. You talk, the rule of greater says that when you start small, what you start small multiplies into something much bigger than what you began with. Jesus talks about this in a whole bunch of his parables. He talks about a harvest in Mark chapter 4, verse 20, a harvest of 30, 60, 100-fold. When Scripture applies this to money, it teaches us that the harvest is greater than the planting in both the magnitude of what you reap and, get this, the kind of fruit you reap. Paul says in Galatians 6, 8, that we reap eternal life from the Spirit by our sowing. In the text we're reading right now, don't miss next Sunday. We're going to lean into this next Sunday. It's described as a harvest of righteousness. God often uses generosity to give us gifts far greater than money. I love I love this new life initiative dream that we keep talking about. We've got three buckets if you read through the front part of that vision guide. These are all secondary goals, you understand. The primary goal is that God would do something in us, 100% engagement. He's doing something in our hearts. But as we do this, we're planting. And those three buckets that we describe, new life for others, new life for generations, new life for venture, we're looking to see seeds multiplied there, a harvest of righteousness. We can't wait to see what God does in us, and we can't wait to see what he would do through us. Thursday night at our advanced commitment night, a friend of mine shared this quote from Randy Alcorn. I love this quote. It says, you can't take it with you, 
but you can send it on ahead. When you invest, when you plant seeds into God's economy to advance his kingdom, you're pushing it toward into, into eternity. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I want to plant toward eternity. Here's farm rules number four. Number four is this. The harvest is proportional to the planting. Huh. The harvest is proportional to the planting. In other words, the size of the combine is dictated by the size of the planter. If you plant one seed, you're going to get one plant, we hope. You plant a dozen, you'll get a dozen. Invest minimally in God's kingdom and you'll reap minimally. Invest greatly and watch as God brings a harvest you simply cannot contain. I want to get real careful here. Let me make it clear. We don't give to get. I'm not a health and wealth gospel guy. I don't want to show up on pastors in sneakers or whatever the Instagram account is. But here is a startling biblical truth. In some ways, your generosity toward God and others often determines his generosity toward you. That would be a fascinating study in Scripture. It's a stewardship principle, by the way. We tend to think of ourselves when we hear that word stewardship, but what about God? He's all wise. He's also stewarding resources. We heard a video testimony last week that asked the question, if I were God, would I give me more money? In other words, am I a good bet? This is how Solomon puts it in Proverbs 19. Whoever is kind to the poor is lending to the Lord. The benefit of his gift will return to him in abundance. Solomon was a generous guy. You could study his life and you can see the truth. To be excessively generous, God is excessively generous. And by the way, you can't outgive God. Farm rules. Here's the fifth. You can't do anything about this year's harvest, but you can do something to change next year's harvest. You can't do anything about this year's harvest, but you can't. In other words, you combine today what you planted yesterday. I know a lot of us, we hate that. You've made a decision to follow Jesus later in your life. You're living for God now, but the consequences of past mistakes keep rearing their ugly heads. You can't do much to change the harvest that you're reaping today. Actions have consequences. Sin has consequences. Even if you pray about it and you ask for forgiveness, God forgives you as soon as we come to him. But those old seeds, oh my goodness, they seem persistent. God won't always eliminate the tough harvest you're living through immediately, but he can change your life by empowering you to sow seeds of the Spirit in your life today. The financial difficulties you're experiencing, the materialism you're seeing on display in your kids, the dissatisfaction of your own heart, these may be a harvest of an ungenerous past. Yeah, you combine today what you planted yesterday, but, oh, check this out. Plant today what you desire to combine tomorrow. You can't do anything about this year's harvest, but you can change next year. You have the power to change your family tree, to break the cycle of spiritual poverty. There's this old proverb that says you want, uh, 
to know the best time to plant a tree? Well, that's 15 years ago. The second best time to plant a tree, well, that's today. We've lived in our house for 15 years. We talked about planting trees then. Had I done that, it would have changed the environment of our backyard. I finally got serious about it about three or four years ago, planted some trees, but it's going to take 15 years. You get the point. It's time to start sowing different seeds so you can reap a different harvest. What do you want to reap next year? It's only possible if you start sowing for it today. What did I say? Cheerfulness isn't about a feeling. It's about readiness. Are you ready? Here's the third. Remember I said there's a foundational truth, and we're going to spend the bulk of the time building the house. Now let's plug in the electricity, shall we? Let's live into this idea. True cheerful giving means that I, I believe in God's provision, I had this moment. Thursday, I was working on this message. I was working on what I was going to say later that night at our, at our advanced commitment night. We'd been doing some work with a mechanic, and he'd give me the quote. The night before, Don and I had done some talking and deciding, and, hey, what, is our, what, what, what are we going to write down on that card? And I woke up that morning feeling some peace. And I'm literally working on this message and the mechanic calls and he says, ah, I quoted you this amount, but this thing happened and we broke this part and this needs to happen. And instead of this, it's going to be this. <gasps> I had just done this. And I felt a knee-jerk reaction. I felt muscle memory kick in. Perhaps you can relate to that. Here's the question. Do you believe in God's provision? The last two verses of this section, I love this, check this out. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. That's an abundance word, right? So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, by the way, this is Psalm 112. This is ancient truth being respoken, being respoken today. He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Do you believe that? You know that old phrase, he who hung the moon holds you? God knows what he's doing. Do you believe that he who hung the moon has planted a harvest moon in your life? Do you know what a harvest moon is? All of these full moons are named. There's a hunter's moon. That's this time of year, a few weeks ago. 28 days before that is the harvest moon. It happens every year during the harvest season of the fall. I don't know all the details around it. It's geometry and geography. I don't know. So for some reason, during that season, the moon, it rises earlier at night, and it's brighter. It's like the sun goes down, the moon stays up, and you can see longer to get your fields harvested, to get that grain, those crops back in. Do you believe that he who hung the moon has planted a harvest moon in your life? If you believe that, it should affect the way you live. I had a youth ministry buddy years ago that had this axiom for his student ministry, plant where the soil is fertile. Weed when you have time. That's a great principle. It works for evangelism. It works for discipleship, discipleship of your heart. Are you cultivating fertile soil? Are you actively weeding your heart? It's easy to lose the forest for the trees. We're talking about a $7 million goal, which includes the normal budget. 
and then above that amount. But $7 million, man, that sounds like an awful lot of money. It's big. Sounds like a corporate goal. It sounds like an us goal, and it is. But don't miss out on the opportunity here for a me goal. Don't get too captured by the big stuff. For some of us, tithing feels enormous. Discipleship is often about taking the next right step. There ain't nothing wrong with baby steps. When a baby takes a step, we cheer like crazy. I want you to hear some stories from a couple of couples here at Venture who have been wrestling with this new life journey, and we're going to lean into some of those everyday moments of faithfulness, of discipleship, as God brings about new life in us. So listen to Scott and Amy, and listen to Cody and Carrie. Check this out. Trying to figure out finances as a young married couple. Uh, We're still new, but luckily for us, uh, as an early wedding gift, my parents kind of gifted us the opportunity to go through a financial peace class, which that taught us about how to budget, save, and just how to kind of break up our finances into their own individual categories. And Just recently, our small group finished doing a study, um, reading through the book, um, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And whenever we were reading that, there were just a lot of things um, regarding finances that popped out and really spoke to us. So one of the things that really stood out while we were reading through the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry was um, breaking down the global wealth pyramid. And it talks about how most Americans are in the top 8% of wealth across the world. And whenever you put it into that perspective, it really turns um, you know, being young and newly married and struggling with things in a whole different perspective when you think about what, how blessed we really are in comparison to other people around the world. So that was just a really big inspiration to us to change how we viewed ourselves and how we viewed our wealth. We really just sat down and had a discussion about, okay, we've got our budget figured out. It's, it's time for us to start tithing putting our faith in God and letting him lead us to wherever we need to give. Yeah, so I grew up uh, mainly on a farm, and uh, that brings a lot of, uh, you know, discipline, hard work, but also kind of a scarcity mindset because we didn't have a lot of money. Uh, So there was a lot of kind of focus on making sure we weren't wasting things, saving up, uh, that kind of mentality. Um, Along with that, though, there was some generosity as well. We would help people that were even less fortunate than we were. My dad is a retired physician and he, like his father before him, put a large emphasis on um, growing wealth and saving for future generations. Um, My mom has an extremely generous heart to the point where I think people would take advantage of her and she gave a lot. She gave everything. Now she's in a nursing home and she has no assets at all. Wrestling with that has um, really made me process what I want to do for my kids. Um, I think that we're raising them to be generous in spirit and also good stewards of what God has given them. Part of that is making sure that they understand the importance of the tithing, but then also that there may be opportunities for giving above and beyond that. We're trying to raise the kids not to focus so much on the material things, but on the things that are important, uh, God's kingdom and giving to others, serving others. Abby, that one time, had to 
one year she gave off her Christmas money to go and buy um, blankets and socks and underwear and stuff for for the homeless people. Mm-hmm. That was, I mean, that's a couple of years ago, but that was one thing she did. It's like, hey, I just want to do this. And she came up with that. There's a joy that you feel in giving to others and serving others that you don't feel just in receiving material items. And I think that's what the kids experience when they give. Financially, we can afford the material things that the kids want, but we are choosing not to lean into that and placing an emphasis on serving others and giving instead. Thank you, Scott and Amy. Thank you, Carrie and Cody. God loves a generous giver, giving at the ready. Be ready for next Sunday. Pray up. Pray courageous prayers. Pray bold prayers. We're going to celebrate next Sunday, but we're going to celebrate right now. We're going to lean into that truth. God loves a cheerful giver. Let's be cheerful. Let's worship him well right now.